I thought it was right. <laughs> Welcome to our newest program of the Local Food Roundup. I'm Chris LaPaglia. And I'm Ann Bowes. We're here to bring you our ongoing series of news, views, and interviews about local food here on the Palouse. And we have a great interview with one of the researchers over at the University of Idaho. I'm here with Dr. Ryan Pilgrim, a faculty member at the University of Idaho in the Sociology and Anthropology Department. I first met with her when she contacted me for an interview on a part of a study that she was doing on women in agriculture. She's done a lot of research on farmers, has a lot of good insight in them, and from both a personal Mm -hmm. and a professional standpoint. So welcome. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about your background and what brought you to do research specifically about the social sciences issues related to farming? Sure, that's always an interesting question. I grew up on a ranch in Montana. My between Helena and Missoula. So, I mean, that was obviously a really formative experience, but it was pretty clear in, our, in my family that, um, that my brother would inherit the ranch. And so I could either marry a rancher or do something different with my life. And considering I was the only person in my third grade, I went to a one-room schoolhouse marrying a rancher. Just <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't look like it was gonna be a good option for me. Um, so, my family ended up actually losing our ranch during the farm crisis of the 1980s. Mm. Um, and just then, just kind of, my dad always had cattle even after that, and my brother still has cattle um, in eastern Montana. And so, you know, it's just, I grew up in a ranching background. I've always been really interested in these issues, and but I've also been always been a really big nerd. You know, I always did well in school and really enjoyed school. And so, for me, when I got especially into graduate school, I became really interested in the idea of thinking about farming and ranching from an academic perspective. It had never occurred to me before that, that you could ask academic questions about these issues that I cared so much about. So that was really exciting to me, actually. Well, I mentioned to you prior to this interview, and I want to let the audience know that I was prompted to do this interview because I and another producer were contacted by someone for an interview on livestock production. He's a very smart guy. He's done a lot of agricultural consulting and he looked up the previous research that this person had done and he was appalled. And when I looked at it, I understood his reaction. I thought it was classist, I thought it was presumptive. Um, And that said, I know there's a lot of good research (laughs) out there. You've done research, I've read it. And I wanted to get the perspective of somebody who understands the issues and most of all understands the issue from the social sciences field. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what kind of research in the social sciences has been done since you know so much about farming since that's your thing on the agricultural and consumer populations? What's, what's, what's out there? There is, uh, <laughs> I mean you do, if you did a if you went and started looking at the literature, 
you'd be amazed at the kind of the breadth and scope of research on agriculture. And so, you know, some of it speaks very closely to things I'm interested in and other things um, less so, right? Mm -hmm. um, academics have many audiences we have to keep in mind when we do our research. Mm -hmm. um, so the research that I really focus on, and I, was, I think I was primarily drawn to it because of my own experiences, but also talking with aunts and grandmothers, was the role of women in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And what role have women played historically? What does that look like? What does that mean for contemporary women involved in agriculture? Although it's only um, women in agriculture is a pretty small part of what I do. Um, I had, we had talked briefly before the interview started about a book that had been written in, at WSU about the history of farming on the Palouse. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that social scientists can really help us understand how we got to this particular moment. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can look around and say, how did we get here? What is going on? And it feels really overwhelming to, to try and answer those questions. And social scientists, um, historians, but sociologists as well, are good at being able to contextualize that and say, well, here are the kind of the ideological reasons we're here. Here are the political reasons we're here. Here are the, you know, here are the, here, let's help you frame that. And that also, I think, is important to help us understanding where we go from here, right? Yeah. If we don't understand how we got to a particular place or what those um, structural limitations can be, it can be hard to know how to get from here. And so That's I think social true. science plays a really critical role in that. Mm -hmm. um, in that kind of work, for sure. Well, certainly, it, you know, there's a history with agriculture, and there's so much that's changed over the, well, if we look back just 50 years, there's a lot that's been changing. Um, and before that, and you've been in a farm family, so you have that family history, mm -hmm. that perspective, and then you have the academic. I'm curious, from the article that I referenced, there was a lot of, prejudice and there wasn't the perspective, the understanding anthropologically about the farming community. There was a prejudiced view of farmers. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because I, I know a good science is done. Mm -hmm. it, it enlightens us. It shows us, yes, we have these prejudices and, and there's mm -hmm. always that in every mm -hmm. human population on earth. Mm -hmm. um, so what are the demographic perceptions of farmers, you know, and different groups of farmers? Oh, that is such a good question. <laughs> um, so I originally started my research as a graduate student on women in conventional agriculture. And I did most of my research at a livestock auction. Because mm -hmm. I was wondering, I was really interested in, sociologists say that meaning gets made in interaction with other humans. The okay. problem with studying farmers and ranchers is they don't often interact with other humans very often. <laughs> Um, yeah. So I was trying to think about, well, what are the spaces where you see people in interaction within this field? So that was what drew me to the livestock auction, because I wanted to do that observation of people interacting with each other. And it was just so much fun and so interesting. And um, Sale yards are very interesting to yes, me. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and how, so one of my research focused on how women presented themselves when they were um, there as buyers and as mm -hmm. the farm operator and how, how women kind of coded themselves. So some of the, you know, some of the more interesting things were they would, they tended to hide their purses. So, you know, if you were there as a wife, you'd put your purse on your lap and kind of keep your coat on. And if you were there as a buyer, you, if you, you'd put your purse under your chair, right? You just kind of, you different. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's just these really interesting things. So anyway, mm -hmm. um, so that's how, 
So I started there, but um, my dissertation committee in the decided told me they didn't think that there was much of a market for people studying conventional agriculture, and that if I I needed to market myself in a different way to get a job, and so that I should study sustainable agriculture. Um, oh, because I could market myself then as an environmental sociologist, which is interesting. A different, a slightly different subfield, right? Um, is that because there are more academic jobs oriented towards yes, that? Yes, absolutely, because there are more academic jobs oriented to that field, which, you know, it speaks to kind of where universities are going, right? This is the sociologist mm -hmm. in me. It speaks to, you know, where people can get funding and how funding operates. And, you know, and I think it was good advice because I got a job and I have a, a field where jobs are pretty hard to come by. Mm -hmm. So it was good advice. But from doing that, it was interesting kind of, to get different perspectives from the farmers I was interviewing on both sides of each other. So in my project I did with you, one of the things that was interesting is I said I was interested in sustainable farming. But I let people kind of self-select into that group, right? Like I'm not, I didn't want to define what sustainability meant. I thought that that was up to the farmers to define that. And I, I had a sense that it might be um, kind of a divisive term. But I don't think until I was in the midst of the interviews it occurred to me quite how divisive it was. It can be. Yeah. Very. Yeah. yeah. And so especially for the women um, involved in sort of conventional scale agriculture who were using methods that, they, that were sustainable both socially and environmentally, um, they often bristled at the term. And, you know, sometimes I'd get an earful about well, you know, I think I'm sustainable. My family's been here for 100 years, so I don't know how you define sustainable, but to me that's sustainable. And I think that, you know, one of the things that those interviews suggested to me was that there was a real conflict or a real division maybe between mm -hmm. kind of small-scale newcomers, sustainable farmers, and some of the folks who'd been um, farming kind of in a more conventional method and that's longer. conventional since the 50s. We forget that yeah. there was it's a always, big change. Even, even how you frame that is controversial, right? right? Do you call it industrial agriculture? Do you call it, call it conventional agriculture? Do you call it um, commodity crop agriculture? And so it's diff so you know all those things define something that we probably have a similar vision of what that looks like out in a field, what those kind of fields would look like. Mm -hmm. But those are loaded terms. They're very right? loaded. And, and they hurt and they cause, they cause, I think. They so, divide. Exactly. And I think yeah. that that's kind of when you ask the question of, well, you know, how do people see farmers? I think that there are a lot of subtly coded, or maybe they're not actually that subtle when you're in that, when you're in that group, well, ways I mean, that divide each other. Well, it depends on who's looking at the farmer mm -hmm. and I guess you have to decide is it coming from academics as as I saw in that one study that I was shown but also is it coming from consumers and I don't know I have a whole article about that <laughs> okay <laughs> one, of, one of the most fun things I wrote I don't know why this is this just gives you a sense of my psyche but um was about how we define sustainability and it was after I did those interviews I was just I couldn't let go of that question of what does it mean to be sustainable. Well, so, that is a good, good question, though. So, so tell me more. So, so I, 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 I teach a whole class on food and culture, and I tell my students that, you know, that, that well, technically there is no definition of sustainability. It is a word that is totally, in many ways, totally meaningless, and that people can define how they want. But right now what we're seeing are some pretty key actors 
Um, so Walmart is one of them. The Keystone mm -hmm. Institute, I think I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, are a couple that are trying to define what sustainability means. And one of the things I argue in my article is that the ability to define sustainability is really powerful because consumers want sustainable goods, but if other companies get to define that, it may it might not meld with what the consumer thinks of as sustainable. And I always pull up in my lecture, you know, sustainable disposable diapers, which I think is, you know, just kind of <laughs> ironic in a way, right? That when mm -hmm. Walmart gets to define what sustainability is, look, as long as you put it in a green wrapper, it's sustainable. So that's what the article addresses. And, it, and I think it comes down to questions of social class. So one of the things that's, that struck me when I was doing my research, I started, I read Michael... Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. Have I you read, read it? I read that, yes. And one of the things that really hit me at the end was when he's out hunting boars. And it, what hit me was that in the way he described it, it's clear he thinks he's like the most sustainable person to ever walk the planet, right? He's this amazing guy. And I started thinking about, and so this is, I hope my family doesn't listen to this, um, and my brother in particular. <laughs> yeah, I remember growing up, my family always hunted, or my dad and brother always hunted. Mm -hmm. And you know, you'd come home and You'd be totally unprepared for the naked deer hanging in the garage. And I never liked it when I was bringing a friend home and there was a deer hanging in the garage. Like, I always just felt like, oh, you guys, could you... I don't know. There was just... There were class issues involved, right? I was a little bit embarrassed that I came from, it, like... There are class issues. Right? Yes. Um, and so, I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's clear that there are. But Pollen does, in his book, right, he's writing about it. And all of a sudden, um, hunting is cool. Mm -hmm. And it's sustainable, and it's good for the environment. And I watched the people around me. I mean, I was in grad school in Eugene, and I didn't fit in very well. But I watched people around me all of a sudden being vegetarian was less cool, and eating your own your own meat that you've hunted was all of yeah. a sudden the sustainable practice. And so that's actually I spent a lot of time in my research talking about who gets to who gets to define what sustainability means, and it's it's in that power of defining it that suggests who has social power. Well, and power, people who have wealth and are of a wealthy class do have more power in determining values for the general population. Am I wrong on no, that? No, you're totally right. So that's, um, the scholarship on that is about like class identity, but it really comes from a scholar called Bourdieu. And what he argues is, and he says that food is one of the best places to find this kind of ideology around class, but that... The upper class will behave in ways to define to to distinguish themselves from the lower classes. But the lower classes watching that then will try and emulate the upper classes. But the upper class then constantly has to shift how they behave mm -hmm. to make their behavior distinct from that of the the lower classes. How right? interesting. And so that's why we see those kind of shifts over time. What about um, people who are in the city? who think of farming, they really don't know, you know the ag world. To be honest, I don't really think most people think that much about farmers, which I think is a real That's shame. That's probably very true. Um, yeah. I don't see that to be the case very often, which is interesting. Um, I think... We are in this moment where that, I think that's a really hard question to answer because there's such an emphasis on food all of a sudden, and I hope it's not a moment. I hope it's the beginning of kind of... Oh, I really hope it's not yeah. just a moment. Yeah. Um, so I certainly see people talking and thinking about food. So I started my dissertation research, or started grad school in 2003. When I wanted to do a class on food, people thought that was sort of strange. 
and now you can't turn around without finding a book on food or I mean I just got kind mm -hmm. of lucky in terms of what I wanted to research I think you know coming back to my research I think most people think of farmers as men mm -hmm. um, they do especially conventional farmers conventional scale farmers and I think there's this is what originally my research was going to be on and then I kind of things took their own turn but that often I think people think of small scale kind of sustainable and I'm using air quotes which people can't see but okay. you know that term mm -hmm. um, as feminized at least so it's more likely to attract women um, interesting so, so that's originally what my research was going to be about and then it just got I just got so interested in so many different things so I think that there's sort of this interesting kind of way people think about large-scale agriculture is about men and small-scale is about women um, mm -hmm. I think we tend to think of it as a rural phenomenon um, I think people often think farmers are rich but stupid <laughs> <laughs> they, they and I are. think it's probably the opposite <laughs> If you can make money raising grain in the Palouse and do it year after year, you're pretty smart. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's one of the things I do when I teach my, my classes. I bring in local farmers and have them, oh, um, I just had J.C. Jensen come in not that long ago mm -hmm. to my last class. And she, she actually developed this great game that she played with the students. I think I've seen that. Yeah. yeah I think that's made the um, PBS airwaves. Oh, yeah, she's an amazing person, but... You know, I think it gave students a much better sense of how many variables farmers have to juggle at a particular time. And so, so I think you're right. And I, that's what the, one of the things I hope to impart in my students is that agriculture is complex. It takes really creative thinkers and that we owe a debt of gratitude to the people who grow our food. When you look at the picture, here you are, you've been raised on a ranch. You've been around farming all your life. What would you, what, what's your takeaway when it comes to the relationship of so, social sciences and agriculture? You've got a profession mm -hmm. that deals with this. Mm -hmm. You've dealt with it. Mm -hmm. So what's your takeaway, if you can put it succinctly? I mean, I think most social scientists go into this profession because we feel like we have a responsibility to our communities. I know... You know, professionally, I have a my, part of my professional ethics are that I have a responsibility to the communities that I study. I think, particularly like in a place like University of Idaho, that can be difficult. You know, I teach. I'm in the. I'm not in the College of Ag, so mm -hmm. I teach a lot of classes, and they're big classes. So I don't get to do as much research as I would like to do. Or maybe not as much as I would like to do, but it's not as much of my job as it is other people's job. Mm -hmm. um, so I really have to seek those out. But I, I have a grant proposal out now with some folks in the College of Ag, people in the College of, uh, College of Ag in Oregon. And so if that was funded, one of the things is that, you know, I get to do, go, I would go out and do my sort of typical research, which is um, doing focus groups and interviews with people. Um, but those interviews would be based off some of the large data sets collected by um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And one of the questions we have is, you get that data, but it doesn't really apply to the lives of our farmers in Idaho. Okay. All right. So my job would be to go out and say, okay, here's what the data says nationally. What about for us here? And then to take those results from my research, and we're working with Farm Extension. So this is all, you know, if we got the grant. If but, you get the grant, of um, course. But then, you know, then those extension officers would take my interviews, 
where we'd work together to create um, teaching opportunities or learning opportunities for farmers in our community saying, this is what we heard, the resources that you felt like you needed to be more successful. So here are those resources. We're going to create them and implement them for you and make sure that they are available. You know, U of I has um, extension officers, I think, in all but two counties in Idaho. So making sure that those resources are available to people. But if we don't know what those resources are, then we can't create them for folks. You know, I think one of the things I've heard from from farmers is, especially on, in this area, is that you know, U of I used to do a lot of seed research, and you're doing less seed research. It makes it harder for us to grow without, mm-hmm. you know. And so, the, you know, we there are certainly political reasons that U of I, political and economic reasons that U of I does less seed research than it did. I see my job as a social scientist is to to make those to write about those reasons, to make them clear to the public um, and to farmers, like what's happening and how, what does it look like to, when you cut education, what does that look like on the ground of farmers, right? That these systems are all intimately connected and you can't get rid of one system without it having a tremendous impact on your community more broadly. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's one of the roles of social scientists is to help clarify those connections. And this may be what you're saying, but um, if you were going to have a say as to what kind of research social and anthropological sciences do, what kind of research should go forth for farmers? What would benefit them? You know, I think that's a almost an impossible question to answer, and I'll tell you why. Because I think sometimes we don't know... Everything has unintended consequences, both good and bad. I think one of the one of the important roles that academics can play is to push the envelope in terms of thinking about where we can go and what questions we should ask. And I know that it annoys people, and I can understand <laughs> that. Um, but I think that we need people who are asking kind of, you know, some of the, I'm a more kind of in the practical realm kind of researcher. But I think we need people who are asking questions all over the place to help us kind of triangulate where to go. I don't know if that makes entire sense, but I hate, I would hate to say that I think my colleagues should be doing this or that kind of research because the world is complicated and and things change so quickly that sometimes the person who's, like me, right? Mm-hmm. When I was doing my research and at the time, people thought it was kind of like, who studies farmers? Mm-hmm. You know, I think I was the only person in my, I can't think of another person who was writing dissertation work on farmers. You know, it seemed kind of out there. And, you know, I think my research has become much more relevant than it seemed 10 years ago. Well, and we were talking about publications and and how things have changed so much in the electronic world. Um, As communications have changed, um, we're no longer restricted to just the journals that you can go online and almost every one of us can get into PubMed or Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So is there more input? I mean, I think it's great when researchers like yourself study farmers and they try and get their their reaction to things and study how they feel, how they perceive things. Mm-hmm. Um, do the farmers have more input? Is this changing in such a way that academics are not directing the farmers? Are the farmers 
able to direct some of the research that's oh, being done? I would say for, I mean, I think one of the hardest things, especially I'm a qualitative researcher, so, you know, I interview people, I do focus groups. If I had a farmer who came to me and said, I have this question and I'm interested in in tackling it and I will help you connect with people. I mean, that's the hardest part of my job. Mm -hmm. um, do I did, you get that? Do you get farmers? I have had that, yeah. Um, okay. And it was, you know, the project didn't work out because um, um, the person had a health crisis, that, so they had to back out. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I was, it was a really exciting idea, and I, I was, yeah, I was really excited about that opportunity. And I think social sciences, well, all sciences, are supposed to be grounded in research questions. What are your questions? And your question is supposed to fill a void that hasn't been asked before. Mm -hmm. And I think people on the ground can give us a much, can give us really good insight into the kind of questions that they're interested in. And I, I know that my research has been guided by these kind of situations where people ask me these questions and I realize, I don't know. So then I go into the literature and I realize nobody really knows. Or we know about, we can answer that question, but only in this kind of population. And so what does that look like in Idaho or in the Northwest or, mm -hmm. you know, in these kind of spaces? So my research on women in agriculture was very much, you know, about women in a rural area. There's lots of research on women in Pennsylvania. State does a ton of research on women in ag. And there's more kind of the I-5 corridor, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, because researchers in those communities are interested in women in agriculture. Okay. Moscow's a very different context, right? It is. And so, yes. so my research, I thought filled a void of answering questions about women in these particular areas that hadn't been answered before. And those were all just from women kind of asking me questions. You know, my so it did come from... Oh, yeah. And my original research project really came from my aunt, my dad's sister, asking me questions about, what are you studying? Well, what about... Well, you know, when I was a kid, women were told this, and I watched your grandma do this, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to get a book out of the library and just read about that. And so, yeah, my, I mean, my original research questions were for sure guided by questions my own family had for me. And I think that's probably the hallmark of any researcher in any field is that you're making sure that your, your research is done um, with respect to the population you're dealing with, which means you listen. Mm -hmm. You don't just judge, you, you listen. Um, and, and that goes, that's not just an ag. Yeah, I know that's in all things. Mm -hmm. And I think that there... I've taken a, a lot of methods classes about how to do research, and I mean, that is really central to what it means to be a researcher, a qualitative researcher, is, mm -hmm. you know, how, what is your relationship with the people you're working with, and do you share your work with them, and what mm -hmm. are those? And that's always been something that I've always... It's been important to me. Well, I know the reason that I, I thought of you um, was because you had shared me with me the research that you did. Um, mm -hmm. I was one of the people you interviewed, and you sent that out. You you made sure that the people you had interviewed saw it, and I was impressed. And I think that when you're willing to do that, I also think that you have the confidence in the quality of your work as you send it out that you know that you are sending out good research. I hope so. I will tell you there's nothing more terrifying than 
sending your re- the what you've written <laughs> out to the people you interviewed and hope you do justice to. There's this well-known research paper, or this well-known paper, um, and the title of it is, I knew people like you, I knew someone like you would misunderstand or wouldn't understand. And it's oh the paper that a researcher wrote after she did what I did and handed her work back to the community. And mm-hmm. she thought she had done a good job and, and their response was scathing that you just, you know, you fundamentally can't understand my, our community and you did a bad job. And so she wrote an article actually with the person who told her that. Oh, interesting. You know, about the difficulties of, of doing this kind of work and, mm-hmm. and how, how you keep doing it even in the face of Failure. <laughs> but, but by doing that, by sending her work out, she got the feedback and she was strong enough in her own person to get that feedback mm-hmm. and to internalize it and to change something that she was doing. So mm-hmm. so the same thing applies when you can do that. But that article's and, always yes. in my head when I push in. Like, okay, here's the article. Close my eyes. What are people going to say? Well, I'm glad you sent that to me because it, it helped me understand the women in ag issue a lot. And I think, you know, I think it goes, um, goes forward when we're willing to interact with different populations and learn from them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what sociology and anthropology should be. Absolutely, yep. Well, that's it for this show. As always, the views presented in this program do not necessarily represent the views of KRFP, its board, staff, or members. And remember that local food may not be free, but... It sure can set you free. Thanks for listening. Oh.